You ever, <clears throat> have you ever made a promise that you couldn't keep? Have you ever been the recipient of a promise that someone else couldn't keep? Promises are wonderful and fearful things. Why is that so? Largely because their surety rests on the one issuing them. Can they deliver on their promise? We have grown accustomed to the double speak of politicians that offer the world, but in reality can deliver very little. You know that even with limitless resources behind their promises that they've made, they still won't be able to deliver. Lyndon B. Johnson, in a speech he gave in Ann Arbor on May 22, 1964, described his administration's ideals to build the great society. This is from his speech, quote, The great society rests in abundance and liberty for all. It demands an end to poverty and racial injustice to which we are totally committed in our time. But that is just the beginning The great society is a place where every child can find knowledge to enrich his mind and to enlarge his talents. It is a place where leisure is a welcome chance to build and reflect, not a feared cause of boredom and restlessness. The place of man serves only the needs of body and the demands of commerce, but the desire for beauty and the hunger for community. End quote. Wow. It's like, a, it's like a picture of the new heavens and the new earth. Lyndon Johnson is going to bring it to us. Wouldn't that be nice? I mean, wouldn't it be nice to win the war on poverty and racial injustice? We find that the unbridled optimism of the 20th century is, although a little bit more cynical, The promise has shifted, not so much coming from politicians as now are tech companies. They're the ones that are promising us this utopia. Uh, Companies promise to work hard to find tech solutions for every problem. Problems we don't even know we have yet. But they will are sure to find a solution. But what will be the proof that we have arrived in the New Tech's great society. How, we, how will we know that their promises are true? How will we be able to determine that what they have said will come to pass? For in each of these further promised technological developments, we, we seem to have more problems than we began with. It's one step forward and two steps back. God made promises. He made promises to Israel. And sometimes, on a cursory reading, it can seem like they're the same kind of promises a politician might make. Promises of a utopia. In fact, in Isaiah's day, God promised that in the future He would eradicate hunger, shame, even death. There would be peace. The lion would lie down with the lamb. Isaiah 25, 6, there would be no more hunger. There would be no more sorrow in the world. 
But he didn't just make general promises. He made specific promises to specific people. Men like Abraham and David. And what assurance did these men have that God would follow through on his promises? And how would they know that they were not just hyperbole? Just God offering something, but then really the substitute is far less than what they expected. This morning is the first Sunday in Advent. Advent is a season of expectation, a season of waiting, anticipating the coming of the Messiah. Now, we are looking back on the anticipation that our brothers and sisters awaited. The Messiah has come. And yet, we are celebrating that in this Advent season, His coming. In Israel's case, it was waiting for the promises given to their forefathers to come to pass. It was waiting for God to finally send His promised Messiah to save His people from their sins. In this Advent season, we're going to be looking at Matthew's Gospel following the theme of Emmanuel, God with us. We begin where Matthew begins, asking the question, where did Jesus come from? To answer that, Matthew traces Jesus' genealogy, but far from being a dry and dusty list of dead men's names, we see a picture emerge of God's covenant faithfulness. That God has made promises to these men that He fulfills. We see that in a remarkable way, God, in the person and work of Jesus Christ, is making good on all of His promises. We see then that Jesus is the proof that God keeps His promises. Jesus is the proof that God keeps covenant. So turn with me this morning to Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. We'll read to verse 17. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Ab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham. And Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah. And Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Eichem, and Eichem the father of Elihud, 
and Eliad, the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar, the father of Mathen, and Mathen, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we give you thanks for your covenant faithfulness that you remain true to your promises. As we open up this text this morning, we pray that the glory of your covenant faithfulness would shine forth and that our hearts would be renewed to deeper trust and loyalty to you. For your promises are true. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, to begin with, I just want to give a brief biography of every name here. Just kidding. Some of your backs started to hurt right then, didn't it? Yeah. (laughs) No, I'm not going to do that. As your outline shows, Matthew has taken great pains to identify several characters in Jesus' line that are important. They are important because Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise that he made to those men. So today, really, we are only going to be looking at verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Matthew begins by alluding to the book of Genesis, which is a fitting place to start to give us the beginnings of, That's what Genesis means, beginnings. The beginnings of the new creation began in Christ Jesus. So, with a nod to Genesis 5.1, which reads, This is the book of the generations of Adam. Matthew begins in the exact same way. In fact, in the Greek, it looks exactly like the Greek of Genesis 5.1. It's the same words, except for instead of Adam... Jesus Christ. This is the book of the generations of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Of all the names mentioned, these two stand as fountainheads whose covenant promise Jesus came to fulfill. And Matthew is very concerned to show continuity between the old creation and what God is doing new in the new creation began with Christ. And chief among his designs is to show how God fulfills his promises. Over and over again in Matthew's gospel, this took place to fulfill what was written. Because Matthew wants to show that the same God who promised Israel is the same God who is bringing it to fulfillment in Jesus Christ. So we begin this morning with Abraham. Abraham is first in, in his line, beginning in verse 2. Abraham was the father of Isaac. We encounter Abraham just 12 chapters in his presence throughout the entirety. And there is no doubt that he fills an important theme in Scripture. But who was Abraham and what were the promises that God gave to him? What we find is that Jesus is the promise given to Abraham. 
Jesus is the fulfillment of God's covenant promises to Abraham. He is the proof that God keeps covenant. We read earlier the account from Genesis 15. Abraham had left his home in Ur, which is in modern-day Iraq, and he traveled all the way up to Assyria and then back down into Israel, coming from the north down. And although God had blessed him significantly in his act of faith and stepping out and leaving his homeland, leaving his all, of, all that he knew in Ur and stepping out in faith to a promise of a land that he'd never been to, never stepped foot on, all on faith. And God had significantly blessed him as he stepped out. But as he dwelled in the land, he continued to remain childless, without an heir. And this caused him great worry. For the very promise that God had given to him seemed to rest on whether or not he had an heir, someone to pass on his legacy to. This is the promise that God makes. He says, I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in, in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. All of those promises seem to rest on the fact that Abraham needed an heir, someone, his own child, to be, to inherit those promises. So in Genesis 15, he pleads with God, give me some sort of assurance that you will. Is, am I just supposed to adopt one of my slaves and make him my heir? So God enters into a solemn covenant with Abraham. Now, a covenant is a way of entering into a relationship that is far more personal than a contract and far more permanent than an ordinary relationship. I want you to get that. A covenant is a way of entering into a relationship. It's far more personal than a contract. It's not just a contract. It's more like a marriage but it's, it's far more permanent than any kind of ordinary relationship. And he tells Abraham to select certain animals. You see, the custom for making covenants, for cutting covenants during the time of Abraham, consisted in dividing animals in half and laying them on the ground. And then the parties, usually there was a, a higher king, the one who was covenanting maybe with a, a tribal leader, who was saying, basically, I need your protection as a king. And I promise that I will obey you in certain terms. And these would be written out. And then that lower tribal chief would walk through the middle of those animals, signifying that if he did not keep the written terms of the covenant, he would be divided in half like those animals. He would be killed. But in a strange turn of events, God doesn't have Abraham pass through the middle of those animals. Instead, a deep sleep falls on Abraham, and he sees in a vision a smoking fire pot pass through the midst of the animals. And that represents God's glory presence. That pillar of fire and the cloud of smoke. 
God passes through the midst saying that if I don't keep the terms of this covenant, let a curse be upon me. Guaranteeing the surety of His promises. The author of Hebrews puts it this way in chapter 6, verse 13, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for me. So let's show more convincing to the heir promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose. He guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that is set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. You see, God pledges. He says, I will bring about this promise. It doesn't rest on you. It rests on me. Even though the full scope of His promise was never realized in In Abraham's life, Abraham did receive an heir, Isaac, his own son. So when Matthew identifies Jesus as the son of Abraham, what is he doing? He is linking Jesus. He is linking Jesus as an heir to the promises given to Abraham. But much more so. Paul says in Galatians 3.16, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. All the men born naturally to Abraham were natural heirs. But when God had made His promises, He made them to Abraham and his offspring singular. Isaac was a type of that offspring, but the fulfillment of the Abrahamic promises awaited the offspring, which Matthew highlights in flashing neon colors as none other than Jesus. According to Matthew, after 42 generations... God had finally fulfilled His promise to Abraham by giving him a son, Jesus. Who is Jesus? He's Abraham's son, the long-awaited offspring in whom all the nations of the world would be blessed. You see, the Bible is a story of redemption. But the story is told in such a way that Jesus is the main character. From the very beginning to the end, every plot line in Scripture leads to Him or goes through Him. The story is of a wrecked creation, spoiled by sin. Whereas in the original creation, God was made to dwell with man in fellowship and communion. Adam walked with God in the garden. God dwelled with him. Now, Because of sin, it is dangerous for sinful man to be in the presence of a holy God. We would be consumed by His holiness. 
What's the response of those who come in contact with this kind of glory? They fall down as dead. And that's usually just people, that's just usually before people who were in the presence of God, like angels. So the whole movement of the story is how will God overcome that barrier? How can we again dwell in the presence of God? And all throughout Scripture, God is preparing a way to dwell with us. It's a story of Emmanuel. It's a story of God with us. Amazingly, God used ordinary men and women to bring about this plan. Men like Abraham and Isaac, like Judah and Tamar, Boaz and Ruth, and on and on listed all these men, some of them grossly immoral, like Manasseh, wicked, although he repented. Still, God used them to bring about His plan of redemption, of God dwelling with us. What do all of these men and women have in common? They they have faith. They believed in the promises of God. As the author of Hebrews again says in 11 verse 13, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. God used all those ordinary saints to bring about His promise to Abraham for an offspring so that in the fullness of time, Jesus was born Son of Abraham. You may think, well, the genealogy stops. Jesus doesn't have any children. How is Jesus a fulfillment of the promise that he would make his offspring as innumerable as the stars in the heaven and the sand on the seashore? It seems to end with him. In a stunning chapter, in Romans chapter 4, Paul makes a case for Gentiles who are are not the natural children of Abraham, nevertheless sharing in his promises. How? He starts by showing that Abraham was justified not by works, but by faith. He believed God's promises, and that was credited to him as righteousness. We read that. And then he asked, was that before or after circumcision? It was before. Why? And he answers that in verse 11 of chapter 4. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised who were not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. It doesn't rest on whether you were born in the natural family of Abraham. But do you have the same faith that Abraham has? Do you believe the promises of God? And are, is that your righteousness? Because it's the same for those natural born to Abraham and those who are, we would say, grafted in. It's by faith. 
They believe the promises of God, so they are included in the, in the family of Abraham and are recipients of all of those promises. We have faith because we believe, and so we share that same faith with Abraham. We are made participants in that same covenant. And we're heirs with Abraham. So what do we believe? Well, we believe that Jesus is the Son of God, the promised offspring of Abraham. And as we'll see, heir to the Davidic throne. Those who believe that are those who share Abraham's faith and are co-heirs then with Christ. Of what? Of the new creation. That God began in Jesus Christ. God is remaking us so that we can be fit to be with Him. How how are we made partakers of that? We believe. We believe the promises of God. Just like them, we can't see them. And they may not be realized in our lifetime, but nevertheless, we hold tightly. Because why? God is faithful. After 42 generations... He's faithful to keep covenant with His people. And Jesus is the proof of that. But Jesus is not just the fulfillment of the promises to Abraham. He's also the fulfillment of the promises made to David. David was perhaps closer than any in the genealogy of Jesus of approximating a fulfillment to the Abrahamic promise. He resembles Christ more than any other person in this line. But, as we will see as we continue to work through 1 Samuel, and Lord willing in the years to come, 2 Samuel, we'll see that David is flawed as well. He becomes the anointed king after Saul. God raises him up to be a man after his own heart. And from his youth... David embodies what it looks like to believe the promises of God. He trusts in God. He is faithful to the covenant. Finally, after years and years of wandering in the wilderness, having already been promised to be king, and yet having to wait until Saul's death, David finally becomes king. First over Judah, in Hebron, and then finally over all the tribes. And his reign is characterized. He expands the territory of Israel, beating back the enemies of God and claiming for Israel the land that was promised to Abraham. But his expansion wasn't just militarily. He also restored worship in Israel, instituting singing and musical instrumentation into the corporate worship of Israel. He is the sweet psalmist of Israel. He penned over half of the Psalms, maybe more. And there we see the breadth and depth of human emotion. As Calvin said, it's the very anatomy of the human soul. David brought unity to the tribes. And as he embodied what faithfulness to the covenant looked like, Israel followed him. As goes the king, so goes the nation. When God gave David rest from his enemies, David desired to build the Lord a temple. Until then, God had made Himself dwell with Israel in the tabernacle. It was a, 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 a tent. 
that was erected during the Exodus and moved around. We've seen it at Shiloh. We've seen it at Bethel. We'll see it in Jerusalem. It moves. It goes with the people of God wherever they go in their wanderings. But now that they are settled in the land and it seemed like God is giving the promises of Abraham, David wants to build a temple, a magnificent temple to bring honor and glory to God who would dwell again in the midst of his people. And he brings this plan to Nathan and we read Nathan's response. And basically, God says, I have been without a home since the Exodus. I've never asked anyone to build me a home. I had judges. I had even King Saul before you. I never asked them to build me a house. I have been with you wherever you went. And I've defeated your enemies. And I will continue to do so in the future. So no, you will not build me a house. But David, I will build you a house. That is, I will build you a dynasty that will last forever. You will never lack a son that comes from you to dwell upon your throne. And that throne will last for all of eternity. David is blown away. He had wanted to honor God, and God turned and said, I am going to honor you. He gave him Solomon to sit on his throne and who also built the Lord a house. But just as with Isaac, Solomon proved to be only a type of the promised offspring of David. First, because he was sinful. In his later years, he, his heart is led astray to worship other gods. And he's not wholly true to the covenant like his father David was. But secondly, it became apparent that he would not rule forever. Why? Because he died. You can't rule forever if you're dead. But Solomon pointed the way forward to Davidic king who would sit on David's throne forever and ever and make for God a new house. That God would dwell in and all of his people would dwell in. And Matthew says the time has come. Jesus fulfills that promise to David. By giving David a son who will be king forever. But not just king of Israel. King of the new creation. Which is everything that God is remaking. His kingdom has no end because unlike every other son of David... Jesus never dies. He defeated death. Death has no power over him. It cannot constrain him to one lifetime. He will rule and reign on the throne of his father David forever and ever. His defeat of death by his resurrection vindicated him, proving that he was the promised son of David and he would remain king forever. But not just remain king forever. He also was building God a house. But not, a, not one of stone, but one of living stones. People, which Paul says in Ephesians 2.22, were being built together as a new temple. A place for God to dwell in by the Spirit. How then do you enter that kingdom where Jesus came? Well, he moved to a place. 
by being born again. As this kingdom is a part of the new creation, no one who is a part of the old creation may come in. New creatures only, which Jesus tells Nicodemus, are those who are born again by the Spirit. You see, the faith that Abraham had, which we share with him, that faith which believes that Jesus to be the Son of God, the promised heir of David, is the instrument that God uses to remake you to be that new creation so that you can inhabit that kingdom where Jesus is king forever. And that happens by faith alone and is the result of His Spirit. And this Advent season as we celebrate the coming of Christ to the little town of Bethlehem, we're reminded over and over again of God's covenant faithfulness. He made promises and they came true. He delivered because He is true. And His words never fail. Not one word has ever fallen to the ground without accomplishing what He sent it to accomplish. And Jesus is the proof of that. And this means that even as we reflect on the coming of Christ 2,000 years ago, we keep in mind all the promises that Jesus gave to His disciples before ascending to sit on the throne of David in heaven. What did He say to them when He left? He said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He gave the promised Holy Spirit as the down payment of our inheritance to all those who believe in Him. Who ha- he has created in you, in you, a dwelling place for God. By His Spirit, you are being formed together as the new creation, living stones, a temple that God dwells in. The whole storyline of Scripture, Jesus said, I'm giving you a down payment of it. Here's the Spirit. I'm going to be with you always. You can never get away from my presence. It's not not just a far-off fantasy. It's an ever-present reality. Jesus, by His Spirit, is always present with you. The promise is fulfilled. Emmanuel, God with us. Do you believe that, saints? Why would you, why would you crumble under fear then? If God is with you, God has made His dwelling place with you. Why would you engage in that sin? If God is with you, if God is with you, why would you entertain that thought? If God is with you, why would you look at that image on the internet? If God is with you, why would you treat your spouse that way? If God is with you, why would you yell at your child? You see, if God is with you, then your life can never be the same. You are a new creature in Christ and you have to live into that. That's what believing the promises of God means. Abraham believed and he stepped out in faith and he went to the promised land. He didn't see it. He didn't get 
a whole bunch of assurance that this was his, he had to take it on faith. The same with David. He didn't get to build God a house. He prepared for it, but he had to trust God. And he had to act. And so do you. If you believe the promises of God, then your life cannot be the same. It cannot be. Because you are a new creation. And God is dwelling within you. Amen? Let's pray. Father, your covenant faithfulness is astounding to us. We have trouble keeping our word. But you remain faithful generation after generation after generation after generation. Your word never fails. And every single one of your promises has found their yes and amen in Jesus Christ. And we believe We believe that He is the offspring of Abraham, the promised heir of David, and that in Him you have begun the new creation. Oh, help our unbelief. All the many ways that we walk contrary to being new creatures in Christ. Conform us to Him so that we may be fit to be in Your presence. Thank You for Your Spirit who is the down payment that mediates the salvation, the reconciliation, the forgiveness of sins, and the joy that we have in Christ. And we pray this in His name. And Amen.